Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. God is with us and his spirit is here. I want to thank you for the invitation and the welcome to the congregation, at least I think I do. Because in preparation for this week, I listened to last week's sermon and I distinctly heard your pastor describe me as having a voice that would put you to sleep. <laughs> Go back and listen. He said something like that. It'll be okay. If you want to hear a voice that puts you to sleep, you need to watch the Netflix series Dairy Girls and their column. He has a voice that puts you to sleep. Now, I have learned, however, over the years in pastoral ministry, if you're not sure whether something is a compliment or an insult, take it as a compliment. Always. Thank you. It's good to be here. Between 1984 and 1986, as part of my training for Baptist ministry, I studied at the Scottish Baptist College. The Scottish Baptist College is in Scotland. In fact, it's in a, a leafy suburb of Glasgow, and when you would walk into the college as a student, sometimes when you went into the common room on a notice board, there was a note for you, and the note said you had to go and see Mrs. Besant. Mrs. Besant was a legend in our college. She was a personal assistant to our president. She sat in the outer office to the president's inner office. And in part, she was a legend because she was famous for having a little tray, and on the tray was a china cup, and beside the china cup was her own teapot with her own tea cozy, and no one touched that. When you went to see Mrs. Besant, when you had been summoned, she would give to you a, a, a piece of paper, and on the piece of paper there were three things. One, there was a name. Second, there was a date. And third, there was a phone number. The name. The name was of the Baptist church that you were going to. The date was the date in which you were going to it. And the third was a phone number. The phone number was for a contact in the church sometimes, it was for the organist. The organist needed to know the hymns by Thursday that you wanted sung so that they could practice. Unlike here, I'm not sure they always did, but nevertheless. And off we would go as students and travel quite literally all over Scotland by train or bus or by car, or in my case, borrowing someone's car. And we would visit many small Baptist churches and we would be expected to preach twice, not two morning services, but a service at 11 a.m., and a service at 6.30 p.m. And in between, you would spend five hours having hospitality by some member of the congregation who had not escaped in time and you had been designated to them. I say that we spent five hours, I have to say, some Sundays, it seemed much, much longer. But what I noticed in many of these churches as I, I traveled and I visited them, what I noticed was that often on the wall right behind the pulpit, and it's different architecture, sometimes for different theological reasons, but different architecture often immediately behind the pulpit would be the wall. And on the wall, 
sometimes engraved into the pulpit, and on one occasion handwritten in the pulpit in colorful pen and sellotaped into the pulpit were the words that we heard from our passage this morning. I'm sure you picked them up, well-known words, the words that were spoken by the Greeks and spoken to Philip, and what they said was this, sir, we want to see Jesus. And to be honest, as I think about it, I like these words. I'm not sure I was a very good optician. What I mean by that is I'm not that sure that my student sermons, even the one I repeated 11 times, I'm not sure that my student sermons helped people to see Jesus, but I like the idea of this. I like the idea that preaching is not simply telling people about Jesus, but showing people to Jesus. I like the idea that the goal of our preaching is not merely that people would learn about Jesus, but that they would, in fact, experience Jesus. In my more artistic and poetic moments, I like the idea that somehow in preaching, Jesus steps out of behind and through the words into the room to meet the people present and to call them to himself. I like that idea. I also like the idea that helping people see Jesus is in fact the mission in the ministry of every single one of us as disciples. Help people see him. Now, if I was you sitting in this congregation and I was sitting beside my wife at this point, I would be muttering under my breath. She tries to stop me. And I would be muttering and what I would be saying is, but it doesn't tell us in the passage that they got to see Jesus. And that's true. This passage is a little bit, how will I put it, awkward. It's a little bit awkward because we're told there were some Greeks, but we're not really told who they were, and we're not told why they were going up to the temple to worship. That's a bit unclear, although many Bible commentators have got many opinions, but if we stick with the passage, it's not clear, so it's a little bit awkward. It's a little bit awkward because they go to Philip, and it's clear Philip's not quite sure what to do with this request from the Greeks, and so Philip goes to Andrew, and it just feels what is going on. It's just a little bit awkward. They only want to see Jesus. Do they have to get past all of you before they can see him? And it feels even more awkward because when Philip and Andrew then turn up to Jesus, instead of answering it and making it easier, Jesus makes it worse because he doesn't really respond to the question either, and instead he responds to this request with his words strange words that would seem the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified and then he launches into a sermon I mean that's awkward it's like meeting your pastor and saying to your pastor oh it's a beautiful fall day and they launch into a sermon I mean it wouldn't feel right so this passage is a little bit awkward and it's not clear whether the Greeks ever got to see Jesus I want them to I really do. I hope they were in the crowd when he preached the sermon. I want that to be the case, but we're not told that the Greeks ever got to see Jesus. But I do know why they're in the passage. I do know why John tells us about them. John tells us about these Greeks because they raise a big question. The question they raise is this, and it's a question that involves every one of us. The question is, what about the rest of us? The question that the Greeks raise is where do we fit into the story of a Jewish Messiah? In the verse that came immediately before the verses that were read to us, the religious leaders are complaining that the whole world is going to see Jesus. And then the Greeks appear. The Greeks represent the whole world. They represent 
the rest of us. They represent the all of us. They represent those of us who are not part of the inner story. And they raise this question, but what about us? Where do we fit into the story of a Jewish Messiah? And that question, Jesus does answer. He answers it in his sermon in these words, these very famous words that we love so much. Jesus said this, and I, when I have been lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This is his answer to their request. The Greeks asked to see Jesus, and Jesus says to everyone, yes, 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 you shall see me. All people will be able to see me when I am lifted up from the earth. And in giving this answer and in indeed living this way in his life, Jesus is actually embodying a pattern that we are meant to follow, a script that we're meant to embody, a score that we're meant to perform as to how we can help others see Jesus. For in the earlier verses, Jesus speaks about a pattern he explains this pattern by reference to an image, by reference to a reflection, with an application and a conclusion. The image, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it would remain there, but it has to fall into the ground and die. I'm paraphrasing. If it is to rise in fruitfulness, that's the image. Then he makes a reflection almost philosophical about life and the reflection is life is a strange thing people when you try to hold on to it it slips through your fingers but when you give it away you gain it and then he ties that up in his application and he says therefore if you want to be my servants you need to follow me he invites all people into his service and his conclusion is and God will honor you and this is the pattern that he gives a pattern of and I'm going to kind of simplify it here, a pattern of laying down to take up, a pattern of giving away to gain, a pattern of serving to receive the honor of God. That is a pattern, and that is a pattern which Jesus embodies in his own life. That is why he's prepared to go the way of the cross. That is why he's prepared to lay it down. That is why he's prepared to say, people will be drawn to me when I am lifted up because he trusts that when the grain of wheat falls, it shall rise again. He embodies that pattern. And that is our pattern. If we desire to be those who will help people see Jesus, it's a pattern of being willing to lay down, a pattern of being willing to give, a pattern of being willing to serve. You don't need me to tell you, but I'll say it anyway. This isn't always a pattern that the Christian church has followed in its models of mission in the world. Instead, at times in our history, we have sought to impose Christianity upon people. Rather than laying down lives, we've been prepared to take other people's lives. Rather than serving, we have demanded to be served. Rather than giving, we have taken. And the tragedy of this is not merely what we have done to people, and that would be big enough in itself. But the tragedy of this is we have missed 
representing. We have misrepresented who Jesus is to the world by the way in which we have tried to communicate him to people. My wife Suzanne and I lived for three years in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Now we live in the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia. The contrast between the two is stunningly brilliant. I laugh every day. Not when I'm trying to use public transport, I don't, because that is a very different story. And when we lived there, we, I, I've played bagpipes for a long time, and I, I hooked up with a Dutch pipe band, and my wife Suzanne actually learned to play the bagpipes in the Netherlands. And there's a long story there, and it involves a pizza shop at one o'clock in the morning, but we're not going there with the story. But when I first started going to the band on my own, I, I was the only Scottish person. This wasn't an expats band. This was a Dutch band. Everyone in it was Dutch, and they spoke Dutch. This was slightly problematic for me because I didn't. And although I was learning, I was terrible. And that led to many moments of chaos when the pipe major gave instructions and the band went one direction and I went the other. And then in Dutch, the A sounds like the E, and I started on all the wrong notes, and nevertheless, however, when I was with that band, I learned a lot about music, and I think it was because I, I was brought up in the tradition of bagpiping playing, and I didn't really have a clue about music, whereas my Dutch colleagues, they knew, knew about music, and they were telling me all the things I was doing wrong. And as we as, as he began to teach us, because there's not a lot you can do with bagpipe music to, for emphasis. I mean, you can't make it louder than it is, can you? Some of you are thinking, please, no, never. <laughs> so the only way you can really get emphasis, apart from all the stunning embellishments, is by holding notes and cutting notes in the music. That's why the notes are held and cut in the music. So they explained to me. And so they would say, lang and notes are lang and quarter notes are court. <laughs> Dutch speaker, eh? Long notes are long, short notes are short. And the pipe sergeant would explain it to me, and he said, you need to play the music this way, and he explained what happened if you don't follow the score. He says, what will happen is if, if a person doesn't follow the score is you'll hear someone playing the bagpipes, and they'll be playing something that sounds like the tune, but isn't the tune. And here's the tragedy. Sometimes through the history of Christianity, we have presented to the world something that looks something like Jesus, but actually is not Jesus, because we have not followed the pattern by which he gave us for helping people to see, which is a pattern where we are willing to fall, to rise, a pattern in which we are willing to give, to gain, a pattern in which we are willing to serve, in which to receive the honor of God. In 2007, I was sitting on the steps of a church in Govan, Glasgow, Scotland. The church was Govan Old Parish Church. It's quite early in the morning. I was there to meet someone who was going to let me into the building. It was a Presbyterian church. I'm an ecumenical Baptist. It was a Presbyterian church, and I was waiting to be let in. The day, I remember the day, it was gray. It was a gray overcast post-industrial day in Glasgow, is how I would describe it. Everything about it felt gray. And as I sat there, I sat looking out, and around this church was a, a small graveyard. 
And I knew a little bit about the history of that church, which is the reason I was there. And I knew that it's located in one of the oldest sites of Christianity in Scotland, not the oldest, but one of the oldest sites of Christianity in Scotland was where Govan Old Parish Church now stands. So I sat there on the steps, surrounded by the graveyard with all this history going on, and I felt I was in holy ground, hallowed ground. But if you'd been there, you might not understand why I might feel that way, because the church building was tired. It was in need of repair. I knew that the church was not being used so much for worship because of congregational decline and congregational amalgamations. The graveyard round about the church was unkempt. The iron around the wall was rusted, corroded, and in many places broken. The grass was long. And when you looked among these gravestones, some of which went back centuries, there was more evidence of the living than the dead. There were empty beer bottles, empty beer cans, packets of cigarettes lying. It, was, it really was a mess. And so I found myself very conflicted. I, I had a strange kind of religious experience where on the one hand I felt I was in holy ground, but on the other, I really had a worry. Was this a prophetic sign? of where Christianity in Scotland was heading, this one great church now sitting in such disrepair. And my mind went back to a time in the history of this church. The period was 1930 to 1938. In 1930, George MacLeod, Reverend George MacLeod, who was described by his biographer as, and I love this phrase, because I've never been this, the darling of the establishment. MacLeod had in front of him what people describe as a glittering ecclesiastical career. And he was at that point currently one of the pastors in one of the most sought after congregations or churches in Edinburgh, the other city. MacLeod was the son of a unionist member of parliament, which means essentially a conservative member of parliament, and I guess there was a time in the UK when that meant something. But he was the son of a member of parliament. And in 1930, MacLeod accepted a call to govern Old Parish Church. Govern, 1930, shipbuilding area. Govern, 1930, crippled with unemployment and poverty. Govan, 1930, Red Clydeside, a place of very, very strong and deep political radical roots. And MacLeod, his mother was concerned that it was a bad career move, accepted the church in Govan, Glasgow, Govan Old Parish Church. And I began to imagine what happened during his period. I wonder what it was like, what, what was it like when for this church, the British Broadcasting Corporation brought in their audio equipment because now MacLeod was going to be preaching to the nation, one of the first and early British religious broadcasters. What was it like when he took the Pierce Institute, which was a, a, a building associated with the church, and he turned it into a place of, of hobby and of craft and of training, and he gave back to men, that was particularly men in those days, he gave back to them not simply something to do, but he gave back to them their dignity. What was it like when they say that literally hundreds of communists wearing their working bonnets 
hats, came into the church to hear him preach a sermon on Christ and communism, and then followed him across the road to engage in question and answer. And what was it like in the week when he took the robe choir out the front doors of the church ringing a handbell and he marched them around the streets of Glasgow, stopping at different points within his parish to preach what he called a message of friendship to the community, inviting them once more to engage the church because MacLeod believed that the churchless millions were partly the church's fault. And he reinvigorated that congregation. And when George MacLeod would leave from there to found the Iona community, one of whose songs we sang today, he did so because he wanted to carry into a national scale what he had done locally. MacLeod, I think, could be a difficult person, but I think it seems to me that somehow in his ministry, he lived out the pattern, laying down to take up, giving to gain, serving to find the honor of God. And as I sat there that day, 2007, I looked out, and when I looked through the gates, there was a Celtic cross outside of the graveyard. That Celtic cross was placed there by MacLeod in 1937, and he preached a sermon. I found the notes. He preached the sermon at three main points. The first point was, why the cross? The second point was, why the old cross? And the third point was, why outside the church gates? And then the third point, he said, the church wants to say it within the gates. It wants to say where it's pretty, and it was pretty then. It wants to stay safe within its walls. It wants to stay in hallowed ground. He said, that's where it wants to stay. But Jesus stayed none of these places and went beyond. And therefore, we need to put the cross beyond the walls if we want people to be connected. And in these sermon notes, I found some words that are a reflection of a bigger statement for which George MacLeod is famous. And this is what MacLeod would say. He said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I am recovering the claim, he said, that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, at a crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, at a kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's own ought to be. And that is what church people ought to be about. And he finished that sermon with these words. Jesus, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And so you and I have the challenge, the opportunity, the grace to seek to help other people see Jesus. Perhaps one time this week, may, might you make that your challenge? Help other people see Jesus. The way in which we do that is by being willing to lay down, trusting that we lift it up. The way in which we do that is by giving because we believe that we will gain. The way in which we do that is through service and trusting that we will then be honored by God. I like 
the idea that the mission of each and every one of us is that we help people see Jesus. Amen.